Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Murphy, good to good to talk to you, brother. I had a, a plan, and that plan was to jump right into this Democratic debate lottery and uh, start this week by talking about that, and we'll get to that. But then I sat down and I watched this show last night, the the president's uh, George Stephanopoulos's thirty hours with Donald Trump, and it was kind of an amazing show. Uh, yeah, how's George doing? Is he recovered yet? Because that I sounds actually, like an ordeal. I actually heard that he's on vacation uh, now <laughs> and probably much needed. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, I read George, George famously meditates. He must have gone overtime uh, after this one. But uh, the, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the moments were like everything with Trump, kind of shocking, but not shocking in that, um, you know, he always uh, says something that kind of makes your head snap back. There were a couple of moments that got reported that were uh, obviously concerning. One was him saying that he might yet accept uh, oppo research from uh, Putin and the Repu- and the Russians, if uh, if the occasion arises, which caused everybody to uh, raise their eyebrows. And then there were these. Yeah, he said it with any any foreign country, so the Danes yes, can make their yes, big move. And Norway, now. he said yeah. Norway may offer yep. those. Those Norwegians are really diabolical that way. I'm so. married to one, sneaky, very <laughs> sneaky. But um, then there was this weird thing. Uh, where he was in the middle of bragging about his personal finances, and then he stopped in the middle of the interview, and here, here's that sound. At some point, I hope they get it, because it's, it's a fantastic financial statement. It's a fantastic financial statement. And uh, let's do that over. He's coughing in the middle of my answer. Yeah, okay. I don't like that, you know? Um, your chief of staff. If you're going to cough, please yeah, leave the room. get a shot of... So just let the record show that was the president of the United States on national TV uh, reaming out his chief of staff for coughing while he was bragging about his personal finances and halting the interview and asking for a retake so he could make the point. Uh, more clearly, just bizarre. Gives you gives you a total taste of what working in that White House is like. You know, I these Trump things are kind of like but, a train here's wreck. My why did he, why, Mike? Why did they give George thirty hours of access? George is smart. George is a great journalist. George is unflappable. Why did and he did a great job on this show? Why why did they give him that access, knowing? what uh, Trump's well, capacities yeah, no, no. It, for it, it, self-immolation it, 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 are. It completely. I, I can only, you know, proffer a theory, which is there is no they. There's just Trump. Trump watches TV all day long. He sees other news personalities and says, oh, I can handle him and I get to be on the screen. So he does it. Now, I can see from a White House yes man's point of view and nobody can control him, but they're thinking, well, look, if you watch it with the sound turned off, you see Trump running around, cheering crowds, big plane, being large and in charge president. And when you turn the sound on, half the time Trump is beating the drum of his alternate reality. So among people who like Trump and they're very <laughs> tend to the garden focused, they're thinking, hey, looks like a president fighting, getting his way. Um, yeah, you know, I, I can't imagine Trump wants anybody but, to 
watch him with the sound turned down. He seems to like to be heard. But um, <laughs> the, the staff, though, would hope but, exactly the opposite. There was a tell, though. There, there, there are always tells of Trump. And you can see the ethical cataracts because in the question on foreign interference. <clears throat> when he walked down the colonnade, uh, George set him up for the old historical question. Instead of going there, because he doesn't know, he said, look at that lawn. Think about how many cameras would fit there. Yeah. So there were constant narcissist, egomaniacal little hints of who he really is. It was an unvarnished look, and it was pretty awful. The other uh, kind of awkward moment was when George started asking him about polling that showed him trailing. Uh, he said Biden, but he's actually in the most current polling trailing every one of the leading Democrats, including in the Fox News uh, polling, and apparently in his own polling, and that's what got him to uh, kind of snap. And he denied that and said that he um, that he's leading in every state in his own polling. And then apparently because the polling was leaked, he went out and fired the pollsters. Yeah, no, there's been a story going around in Republican hack circles that I heard a few weeks ago that they brought a bunch of this data in to show them. And there was particularly bad data in Pennsylvania. And he threw one of those bunker fits, you know, counterattack with the 5th Panzer Division. <laughs> Sir, that was destroyed three years ago at Stalingrad. Lies! Churchill lies! And, you know, knocked over the table. It was apparently very bad. And he said... I only want polls from Rasmussen because he's the only guy who knows how to poll. He's so fragile, you know, the bad news freaks him out. So they literally have started firing pollsters for reporting. It could bad be worth, news. as I said elsewhere, it could be North Korea. I mean, imagine how Kim would treat pollsters who didn't give him numbers that he wanted. These, yeah, these pollsters the should be relieved, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, look, I, I have no, I have a lot of friends, some of whom are on that fired list in, in the party that I've worked for, but I, I have no sympathy for people who, who take the Trump moral compromise. They should expect to be treated badly. But it, it's another tell. This means the campaign is going to have to have one reality zone around him, which is we're winning in the East, everything's great, and another reality zone inside the campaign. And because he runs everything, that is a weakness. Yeah. So the one other, so he's announcing tonight in uh, Disneyland in Orlando. I don't know if it's actually at Disneyland, but he's announcing in uh, Orlando. And uh, there was a Wall Street Journal NBC poll over the weekend. And it, uh, there were a couple of things that were uh, striking about it. His approval rating st still 44%. Rarely, it never moves up, never moves down, trades within this very narrow margin, never at 50% on the average, With if you average in all polls. And uh, that's never happened before. The second is that they asked this question about whether people would be enthusi enthusiastic with, with the candidate, individual candidates. Trump uh, was 52% said that they, were, uh, they would be uncomfortable with his candidacy. I think very uncomfortable yeah, is the term. Yeah, 52% very Very uncomfortable. uncomfortable. And, another, and another 10% say have some reservations. But f so basically, he is counting on people who are uh, very uncomfortable, uh, or I guess he'd fish in the pond of have some reservations. Uh, to win. That is a bad place to start in a race for president. 
Yeah, my view is every poll and every mark-to-market moment when we actually vote people, whether it was the specials in 2017 or the midterms, the country's trying to punish Trump. There's a majority of fired Trump. So the two big questions are, can Trump change and fix all this? Uh, You know, I wouldn't bet on it. He's kind of the atomic clock at Trump. Will the Democrats nominate? Of course, the second question, somebody Trump can make the race about instead of him. You think I'm terrible? (laughs) Well, that has to be it. I mean, the fact is that that's that's how he won the last time, and uh, that's how he's going to have to win this time. It's clear his number is not going to move up particularly, so he has to incinerate his opponent. And, uh, you know, he started chomping on uh, Joe Biden. It's not clear that Joe Biden... Uh, will be the nominee, however. And um, you see this latest polling, uh, spate of polling from uh, a variety of states, and you do have a top tier of Democrats that are emerging. You see Biden coming down a little, Warren, Elizabeth Warren moving up. Bernie Sanders uh, is uh, is sort of hovering and struggling. Uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg, the the young mayor from South Bend, uh, and then Kamala Harris uh, on the outside of that uh, on the outside of that top tier. Uh, that is that is what the national polls are showing. That is what the polls in the first four uh, states are showing. Um, there was interestingly a, a poll in your home state of California and Senator Harris's poll that had Biden at twenty two, Elizabeth Warren at eighteen, Sanders at seventeen, Harris at thirteen, Buttigieg at ten. And Warren and Biden were leading uh, uh, among African-American voters, uh, 34% for Biden, 32% uh, for Warren. Um, these, First of all, this shows good movement on her part. Uh, secondly, uh, it'd be concerning for Kamala Harris, wouldn't it, to be uh, in fourth place in her, in her home state? Yeah, I think so. But it's also a symptom of her other problems. California is too big to have a favorite son. It's almost a country on its own. So it's going to follow a favorite the, daughter. I mean, a favorite daughter. Exactly. I'm using the historically anachronist term. Yes, uh, okay. But right, a favorite anybody, because it's just too big. So it's kind of a mirror of the national polling, which in itself is a this early kind of a weird cocktail. On one hand, it test that when you get exposure, how your message is working. And I think that's where Elizabeth Warren is selling tickets. And then there's a momentum thing. You, you start to do well in an early state. You start to get polling there. The national media focuses on you. And then you get this noise meter effect in national polling. And, and there's no doubt the energy has been Warren and Mayor Pete moving up. And the two best known people who dominated early polling for that reason, Bernie in particular, but also Biden, slipping a little. So, you know, we'll have the first big debate, which will be another stimulator to the noise meter. But but there's no doubt that the the two candidates that at least now are are breaking through and showing a little resonance out there, amplified by the national media noise meter effect, or Mayor Pete and Warren. And, you know, I've, I've said for a long time, I thought, and you've said the same thing, her message, you know, the mix of not an old white guy, progressive economics and fighter is pretty attractive to Democratic voters. And as they discover her in the early states, she seems to sell. Now, you know, we'll see what the second look is like when she goes through this Well, this, this actually process. is her second look because she started off uh, highly touted. Uh, she stumbled uh, and uh, was left for, you know, out of the thing by a lot of people. And she's kind of per- fought her way back into this. 
Um, and, you know, I think the thing that she and Buttigieg have in common is that they have a discernible message. I mean, hers is very clear. It's a populist message. It's something that's rooted in uh, where, where she comes from and her life's work. And uh, it's very coherent. Uh, and it's, and it's uh, augmented by this very rich body of policy that she's put out uh, that is appealing to a lot of Democrats. Buttigieg is running on a new generation message, and that is very right. clear. Um, it isn't clear to me, and 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 frankly, uh, you know, we know what Bernie Sanders' message is. It's similar to Warren's. She seems to be superseding him in some ways uh, with her policy. We know what Biden's message is. I'm not Trump, and I can beat him. Uh, I'm the best chance to beat Trump. Um, I think for Kamala Harris, who is well liked in most of these polls, and I second choice and. The Iowa polls, and I suspect elsewhere, there is there is room, but I don't think she's gotten her narrative down in this yeah, race. Yet. No, I don't either, and I think she has a Cory Booker problem because if he can catch on in Iowa and edge her, then all that South Carolina later African American vote, the media will at least think could be his. So she's got to kind of battle her way up, and I agree. I don't really know what her central story slash narrative is is she an economic liberal populist over with elizabeth is she pragmatic can do liberal like mayor pete fairly new well i think what she's settled on what she's settled on is i'm a tough prosecutor and i can take the case to donald trump i mean that seems to be where she has gone with her message after the uh after the hearing with uh, Attorney General Barr, in which she had a star turn in questioning him and got some connectivity after that, it went off the skids a little bit last week when she was asked uh, about whether uh, the Justice Department would in, should, uh, should indict or would indict Trump after he left office. And she said, I think they would have to. And the implication yeah. was that if she were president, that, that Trump would be indicted. And for a party that's been really hammering the president for not politicizing the the the, uh, the Justice Department. Um, it was an awkward moment, which she cleaned up a few hours later. But I think it was that prosecutorial mindset uh, that uh, took hold there. It's also a bad strategy to try to get into an auction where everybody's going to have varying degrees of uh, agreement with you. So you don't really stand apart other than being the shrillest, farthest out there. Uh, which I don't think augurs well, because while we know from that Wall Street Journal data and everything else that Democrats love, or a lot of them love the idea of impeachment, it's not a number mover really in the general election. It's a political swamp that uh, uh, Trump might be able to score some points in. So she needs a bigger, stronger message that's only her. And uh, she's got time, you know, one great debate moment, we'll all be talking about her in two weeks, but haven't seen it yet. Well, let's talk about that because uh, this is the week of the NBA lottery. I know you're not a big uh, NBA fan, but uh, but uh, th- they did have a lottery last week at the end of last week uh, to see the who would be in what heat of this mammoth Democratic field that's going to be divided in two nights for uh, for debate purposes. And it turned out that it sorted itself out almost uh, as if there were uh, an A and B. Uh, kind of senior varsity, junior varsity group in that four of the five top candidates in polling ended up in one heat, Biden, Sanders, uh, uh, Buttigieg, and Harris. And Elizabeth Warren is now in the other heat, which will happen on the first night, uh, along with Cory Booker uh, and Beto O'Rourke 
and uh, and seven others. Uh, what do you think the meaning of that is? Well, you know, they can always do well in their circumstance. But going in, I would be happy if I were Mayor Pete because I get my generational moment with Joe Biden. And I would be thinking about this if I were Biden because maybe I can show a little dominance over Mayor Pete. So there's something at stake for both of them there, and I think that could be a focal point. With the others, Bernie trying to restart, Kamala trying to get in. On the Elizabeth Warren, working with the Ham and Eggers there, though there are a couple of those one percenters in the second debate as well. But for her in that first debate, on one hand, she gets to be the star. On the problem, there's nobody for her to punch up and gain on. And there are a lot of people, Klobuchar, others, who might be poking at her. So I think to the extent there was a placement loser, it was her, but not not tragically so, because she will be the star of her own primetime debate. Yeah. But, you know, so uh, no, no, no wipeouts, but I'll bet she wishes she were on the same stage with Bernie Sanders. No, but I, I, I bet you that Joe Biden is relieved that he's not on the same stage with her because she, more than anyone yeah. else, has shown an inclination to go after him, specifically on this bankruptcy bill uh, on which they battled back in the mid-2000s. Uh, she on the consumer side of it, him on the industry uh, side of it. So I, I bet you there was a sigh of relief over in the Biden camp when she went over to the other uh, bracket. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that, uh, yes, yeah, she may become a target of that group. Uh, she also may, uh, she's the one everybody's going to be watching that night, the first right. first night of those debates, and that's a big opportunity for her. I do think Bernie Sanders will mix it up with Biden, uh, you know, maybe on, in some of the same ways that Warren uh, would have mixed it up. Uh, with Biden. I'd be surprised if that didn't happen. And the question is, uh, you know, how does that dynamic work for Biden? How does it work for Bernie? And does it create an opportunity for a Buddha judge to look like the, you know, dynamic young leader while the the old guys uh, argue yeah. over at the shuffleboard court? <laughs> I think totally. Mom, dad, quit fighting. Or meaner version, grandpa, grandma. Or this is the past and I'm here to talk about the future. Right. The question for Kamala Harris is where she, how she intervenes in that group. How does she uh, have her moment uh, in that group? The fact that she is the most prominent contender, uh, female contender on that uh, that stage and on that night. may give her one opportunity. But we're going to do a lot more about the debate next week uh, as we set the thing up. I do have one quick prediction before we move on. I think the big moment could be Marianne Williamson when she floats across (laughs) the stage in a gown made of magic miracle crystals. So that's where my money is in Vegas. (laughs) Um, So, Mike, you and I looked at this L.A. Times story the other day that talked about Democrats in a panic about the amount of money the Trump campaign is spending on digital. And it struck me that that is a important thing to talk about. And the guy to talk to about it is my old buddy David Pluff, who works for the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is the philanthropic arm of Facebook. David Pluff, my old uh, partner, my buddy, 10 years together. You know Mike Murphy uh, over here. We feuded for years. No. <laughs> we uh, we did a speech together not long ago. So up in Toronto, home of the NBA champs. Yeah, it's good to see. you. Right, we guys, run out uh, of Canada, the but podcast. they clearly <laughs> took their revenge on the basketball. It was, court. It was good of you to uh, to say it, being a denizen of San Francisco, giving uh, giving Toronto its props. 
Hey, Pluff, there was a story in the LA Times in the last few days, and it was about how uh, concerned Democratic strategists were about all of this early um, digital spending and Facebook spending, Facebook ads that uh, the Trump campaign is doing. And nobody's a deeper student of the intersection between strategy and tactics than you. So I thought we ought to call you up and ask you what you make of that. Uh, There is a huge margin. They don't have an opponent, and they're beta testing lots and lots of stuff, which has people nervous. Uh, Should they be nervous? Oh, I think everyone should be exceedingly nervous. Um, Now, of course, it's not as important as who the Democrats nominate or the state of the economy or we or the RAND. But it all matters on the margins. And right. This race will probably be won or lost on the margins. And, you know, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, um, uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama utilized the off year in the first part of the on year exceedingly well. But honestly, we weren't spending money like this. None of us were. So and this isn't the job of the Democratic candidates running for the, you know, the nomination. They've got their own war to win in the primary. So the outside groups here, someone's got to, or some constellation needs to belly up to the bar here. And be in Wisconsin, in Florida, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Arizona every day with digital ads, both to learn from it. And the Trump campaign is clearly learning from it. They're putting out an enormous amount of content, but also to actually make sure he doesn't grow because this is all about his win number. And, you know, he cannot win these states probably 50 percent or even 49. But, you know, they can do a lot of smart work here in the next year to really figure out how to get those win numbers up closer to 48.5, 48.8. So it's critically important. And right now, as far as I know, there's not a single Democratic entity right now spending real money in those battleground states um, trying to basically square up with the Trump campaign. You know, it's kind of amazing because one of the real, I don't know, bedrock rules of politics is you never let your opponent run in the clear. And there are about 10 states where they're letting him run in the clear. Now, there, there is a footnote to this, which I think is a, a point of clarity and also an opportunity for the Dems. Once they start, and I have to believe this vacuum will get filled and there will be some entity going you know, at Trump in those states, a lot of Trump spending is finance related. It's like the old direct mail fundraising of old. Now, a lot of what they're doing is you know, looking for clicks to turn into dollars in Facebook. So that doesn't mean abrogate the field and let them run wild. But how much of it is actually targeted at swing voters rather than creating clicks for money because Trump underperforms in kind of the country club world? He's running behind George W.'s reelect. He's running behind Romney's, but he's making up with low dollar, which does have a political benefit, at least within the third of the country that he's got a grip. On. So if the Dems wake up and do this, they not only ought to match him, I think with swing voters in those states, they could exceed him. But there's no reason to leave it wide open. I couldn't agree more. And it's kind of surprising to me after the lesson you guys taught him with uh, the, the massage you gave Mitt Romney that they're, they're, the Dems are letting this happen. You know, he's spent well, that. Go ahead. Go ahead, David. Well, no, it's a great point. I'd say a couple things. One is, like Clinton, like Bush, we were the candidate, so nothing was more important to us than to find the race and the campaign and our opponent. Right now, we have 24 people or whatever is running for president. It's not any of their jobs. I don't think the DNC is going to fill this void. So you need outside groups to, but I'd say a couple of things. One is those low-dollar donors that Trump's finding do turn into volunteers, and that will matter. Secondly, right. we know he's running immigration ads right. to older white voters. Some of those are persuasion. He's doing criminal justice ads to African-Americans. But, you know, if you're a Democrat, there's four universities you have to worry about. One, persuasion, and they exist. 
both the Trump-Obama voters, but also Romney-Clinton voters. There are some suburban women who voted against Trump in 16 that might be available to them now. So if you're a Democrat, you've got to prevent growth there. Two, registration targets. Three, turnout targets. And then fourth, really critically important, are people who are at risk of not voting for Trump that could vote third party. So, so there's these universes, and we need to be tending to all of them. And the truth is, it's not that many people. We're talking that even if you add Florida, you're talking at probably two, two and a half million people tops. It's a pittance of people. And so, so, but, 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 you know, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, it's not their job till June. I'd like it to be the DNC's job, but historically, that's not been the role they played. So we're going to have to be reliant on outside groups, whether it's Priorities USA, Mike Bloomberg, others, to get into the, the, the game here and make sure you're squaring up with this guy. Because the, 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 the general election has started. It's happening right now on computer screens and phones in those battleground states. Uh, and, you know, again, I don't want to overstate the import of it, because if the economy goes south, we nominate somebody who's great. Given the numbers you talked about, Mike, Trump probably can't win. But in a close race, which we better assume it is, all this stuff matters in the margins. But I know one thing, Trump's going to enter the general election with a hell of a lot more sophistication around the general electorate than the Democrat is. Yeah, and you can, um, you can see you, tired. you can see in his spending that he's spending heavily in Florida, he's spending heavily in Michigan, he's, he- he's spending heavily in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin uh, and uh Arizona and uh, Ohio, you know, these are not, uh, Mike, to your point, this is not all about low dollar fundraising. He is uh, he is really uh, penetrating these states where, as David says, uh, that can make a marginal difference. And it's going to be the field goal team that wins these states. You know, it's going to be a small margin. So he is going to have a head start. To your point, David, about what Democrats need to do, you know, uh, after this LA Times story appeared, there was one in Politico saying Democrats plan a nine-figure campaign against uh, Trump. But the thing that wasn't clear to me from the uh, piece was where the nine figures are coming from. Democratic Party is not a, it's never been a terribly centralized operation. And we have, there, there are a lot of um, independent operators who all have their own ideas about how to spend money, but not necessarily in coordination with each other. I was wondering about that, the consultant pirate program where you got 20 <laughs> entrepreneurs each setting up the committee to save the Democratic Party from Donald Trump. And it's very hard to have any enforcement mechanism when you don't have the White House to kind of knock people into line. So it's, a, it's one smart, big organization. I mean, you guys are scaring me even more. Do you have any? Yeah. Do you have any sense of that? Do you have any sense that there's some coordinated plan out there? I wouldn't say coordinated. No. So it is. It is deeply concerning. There's a lot of discussion out there. I think, you know, folks like Priorities USA and some of the other groups. Um, you know, I think we all had some hope that maybe Mike Bloomberg, when he decided not to run, would he played such an important role in House races in 18, may step up and, and maybe he still will. But there's a void, and so there's. I agree with you. I think the word you used actually is aspiration. There's a lot of aspiration and intention. This has to happen now. I mean, my view of presidential campaigns is we're going to have a nominee next May or June, and they need to carry the last five months. And some folks on the outside can be helpful, but they're in the driver's seat. We, there's got to be a bridge between now and June. And if that doesn't happen, again, I don't think it's just about the learnings you're going to have and the data that you're going to make smarter. That's important. There, there's actually been a real damage done. 
Uh, and so I think there's there's a twofold need right now, which is basically to match or exceed Trump in spending in these states so that you're doing good work along the way, but then also to learn a lot to help inform the, that last five months. And, you know, you and I have been through this, David. You know, you come out of that primary, you're broke, you're tired, and now you've got to run a completely different race, turning on a dime from primary to general. And Trump's going to be up there like 5,000 feet above these Democrats just shooting down on them. Uh, and, and so I think that this is, yeah, so this is where it's not going to be the party. I mean, that only works when you are in the White House, when you coming in the White House. Right. And that's the advantage Trump has right now. So to your point, Mike, the problem is, this is why I was hopeful for Bloomberg, is, you know, they could spend enough money, and that's a smart enough organization, that they could kind of be the North Star and maybe a coordinating entity. If that doesn't happen, you are kind of up to a pirate, you know, fleet here. Um, and that's concerning. You know, maybe somebody takes Wisconsin, somebody takes Florida, somebody takes Pennsylvania. But, you know, the clock is ticking here. Again, this is less important than some of the big factors, but it sure. matters. And, and I, I guarantee you they've found three or 5,000 voters already in those middle, Midwestern states through this immigration advertisement that they didn't know were Trump supporters that might be now. And, you know, the, that's like a third of the win number they need. So the thing that stuns me about it, just quickly, is Trump's numbers are bad enough. He looks like he's had a year of paid beating on him. So all they really have to do <laughs> is keep him where he is, not let him get on his feet again. So the idea of letting him run in the clear just seems crazy. But, you know, politics is a human business full of crazy. Well, but it is true that there are, you know, 23 or four people competing for this nomination, and their focus right now is to get to the finals, uh, not what to do once they get there. I think uh, in 2012, uh, those who are associated with Mitt Romney can attest to what it's like to have to battle hard to win the nomination and turn the corner and face an incumbent president, uh, John Kerry as well. Uh, so, David, about those all those candidates, we, I think we had seven back in 2007 and eight who were seriously uh, competing? Of these candidates, what do you see? And I know you're, you know, you're like Pope John the Twenty Third. You're everybody's friend and all of that. But uh, but uh, what do you see out there uh, in terms of? Who's got the? Who's showing organizational promise? Who's showing uh, some spark? I mean, it looks like Elizabeth Warren has has. Uh, has been moving steadily in this race. Well, and I'm not just trying to duck you, X. I mean, it is ridiculously early, right? And so this will, I'm sure between now and, you know, the first caucus uh, goers in Iowa, you know, we'll have five or six different chapters in this campaign. But I think that the big, yeah, I think Warren has definitely created some excitement and energy out there. Um, and, you know, my understanding is, is building a pretty good organization um, I hear that, you know, better or work and, and Mayor Peter doing the same in Iowa, Cory Booker, Kamala. I think they're all, you know, focused. I think what's interesting is there's clearly going to be an opening for, you know, a fresh face. And so will that be more than one person? Probably not. So there's going to be, I think we can overstate the, you know, everyone's in, you know, this, this question about who's in somebody else's lane. But, you know, there's going to be an opportunity for a Kamala or a Booker or a Mayor Peter or a Beto, I think, to to, to potentially merge. But they've got to do you know well enough. So what does that mean? That probably means at least third in Iowa, and it probably means top three New Hampshire. And then certainly, you know, there's going to be two or three people at most coming out of South Carolina with velocity. So, um, but it's really early. And you remember back in '04, I was on Gephardt, you were on Edwards. You know, Kerry and Edwards, if I recall, even two weeks out were three, four in Iowa. Um, you know, Bill Clinton started the race at like one or two percent. We were thirty points behind Hillary. 
you know, so, I mean, I just think that it is really, really early. Um, you know, I think Biden, you know, is, is, is stronger than I think a lot of us thought. How sticky that support is, I don't know. I think that'll be tested. Um, but, you know, I think wh- one thing back to our prior discussion, you know, we have these debates upcoming, and I think they're going to be super interesting in terms of the dynamic between the candidates. My guess is the Trump campaign is going to be incredibly smart about using digital advertising, um, you know, to define that field. And so, you know, come January 20, June 28th, I'm sure we'll have lots of, you know, figure skating judging about who did well on both of the nights. But my guess is in those battleground states with general election voters, the Trump campaign will have done a lot of good work. So that I'm going to be watching that very carefully to see what they do around the debate. Anyway, Pluff, you are now officially uh, a hack on tap. And uh, we will be touching a base with you from time to time as this moves on. But uh, let the record note that you sounded the alarm uh, about what isn't happening right now and should be happening uh, relative to the uh, Democratic campaign. Well, Axel, I'll send you my address so you can send me a case of old style. (laughs) Better better, yet, we've got to get together and drink it together. So uh, we we will do that soon. Good chatting with you. Thanks for coming on. Good chatting with you, brother. Thanks. So, you know, Axe, picking a president is a lot like hiring somebody. And in these times, in today's competitive workplace, hiring is not easy. So that's why we're happy today with our initial advertiser, ZipRecruiter.com. It makes it so easy. All you got to do is get to ZipRecruiter.com slash Axe. You're right. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. Maybe this is where the Democratic Party should go right now. It would save a lot of money and time. What's amazing is as those applications come in, they analyze each one and they match up and spotlight the top candidates so you never miss a great match. It's so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And we know from politics that speed counts. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash hacks. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash H-A-C-K-S. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Okay, let's go to the mailbag acts. This is from Kate, and she writes, There are lots of Democratic candidates I like, but my current favorites are Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Pete. Trump is such a bully and such a dirty campaigner. Who do you think can best withstand his bullying? And I like how Kate blows up the lane theory there. So what do you think, X? Who's the best to withstand Trump's bully aspect? Well, she actually gets to a question that I think has been hotly debated among Democrats. My my view is that people uh, in these races look for the remedy to the uh, most salient quality of the person they have. So uh, Trump is a bully. He, he is a nasty. He is all of those things. Uh, or can be. Uh, and it seems to me that people are not going to look for a democratic uh, version of the same thing. I think they are going to look for someone who can uh, is tough enough to stand with Trump, uh, but isn't necessarily going to trade jibe for jibe uh, with him. And uh, it's not clear to me yet who I think we'll see more in the coming months about who stylistically uh, may appeal. Uh, 
you know, and Elizabeth Warren and Mayor Peter are quite different in their approaches. I mean, she revels in being a fighter, uh, not necessarily a, 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 you know, a nasty fighter, but she revels in being a fighter. Uh, Mayor Pete uh, is a much uh, more detached figure in that regard, much more centered, much calmer. Uh, and there are other choices as well. So uh, my guess is that at the end of the day, people are going to look for someone who is most unlike Trump. And that means someone who is not uh, uh, habitually on the attack. Uh, but uh, we shall see. Yep. When you're running against a jerk, be the anti-jerk with strength. I couldn't agree more. So Stephen A., writes in, what becomes of the never-Trump Republicans in the short term? I can't get behind the incompetence, misogyny, racism, narcissism, narcissism, and economic anti-conservatism of Trump. I guess he's not for him. However, I can't join the Democrats who are running all the businesses out of town while creating a welfare state. Who do they rally behind? You're like a guru for this guy. What do you, what do you have to say? <laughs> yeah. Stephen, my brother. That's actually my secret <laughs> internet name, Stephen. Uh, no, I, uh, I have the same dilemma. I, I want to see Trump thrown out of the office, but I want to stop socialism before it destroys the working poor in America. So I'm not quite sure what to do. I know that if Trump loses and we have another cataclysmic loss in the Republican Party, out of the rubble, there will be a mighty fight to rebuild the party. We're going to have a modernized conservatism or are we going to have more nativist kind of the cheap imitation of Trump? And that's going to be a worthy civil war and I want to be part of it. But in the short term, I can tell you what I'm doing. Here in communist California, I have for the first time in my life a great pain changed my registration from Republican to decline to state, which is independent. And not because I'm leaving the party, but because I want to vote in the Democratic primary in our early California primary. And uh, I'm against Trump, but I'm also against socialism. So it's possible we get a center Democrat we can live with while we rebuild the party. I'm not going to. I'm not going to get into the socialism debate uh, with you. There'll be plenty of time uh, for that. Holden says, you mentioned at one point that the election process is sequential, not national. I'd love to hear more about this and perhaps how, if at all, this is changing with instantaneous mass awareness and social media and or how it's not changing if it's not because of our hyper-fragmented political and social cliques and news sources. Uh, well, uh, I... I you have your you can answer this mike but my my view is that uh the early primaries and particularly the Iowa caucuses have been written off as important way too soon uh i think that there are going to be a few tickets out of Iowa in the democratic race and they're going to be uh, there's going to be a mad scramble to be in one of those uh three slots and a lot of people before we get to Iowa and, and a lot of people after we get to Iowa are going to go back to their day jobs because uh, the game is over. Yeah, I have the same instinct. I mean, the system we grew up with, Iowa and New Hampshire were the first laboratory where people got to vote and narrow the field. And then you would raise the money, you get the media attention, and all of a sudden your polls would be skyrocketing around the country from all that attention. Now with streaming video and the internet and all the ways you can send out a message in social media for free, there's a question, will people not need to win Iowa, New Hampshire to raise money and compete? And, and my guess is, and we're going to find out, that this could be the hybrid year where the first two are really important, but instead of two and a half seats out of Iowa, 
it might be three and a half. There might be room for a few more because they build a big following. They can keep raising money. They can keep going for a while. So it could change the equation a bit, but I would not bet against the narrowing effect of those early primaries. They're just too important. And when people vote, it matters. And those are the first real tests of who have voter appeal. And that that does tend to have an effect down the line. Yeah, I mean, I can attest to the fact that when Barack Obama won the Iowa caucuses, he was shot from a cannon. And yes, he lost uh, New Hampshire narrowly to Hillary Clinton after that. But had he not won the Iowa caucuses, it would have been over for him. And the Iowa doesn't necessarily name the winner, but it is a sieve and it, and it weeds out a lot of candidates. So names a whole bunch of losers. Um, and and it narrows the race. And I think those early races will do that. On your point, uh, one interesting question is, what about Kamala Harris, uh, who uh, on paper ought to be able to do well in South Carolina if she's the uh, only uh, African-American candidate uh, on the ballot? She has real ties in Nevada across the border from California and uh, good labor ties there. She uh, obviously should do well in California, but can she actualize all of that potential if she finishes fourth or fifth in two in the first two states? And I think that's an open question. Yeah, I'd, I'd actually bet it'll be curtains. And I'll go into our hacks on tap time tunnel here. Remember in 84, Ruben Askew, the great Democratic governor of Florida. Florida who can forget was, Ruben Askew? Yeah, who can forget Ruben Askew? He ran for president. I actually have a button and a picture with me and him on the floor of the Democratic Convention in Sacramento. I wrote a profile I, for him at the Chicago <laughs> Tribune, so that's why I remember him. But go ahead. Well, I had to sneak into that convention. It's still in the oppo file against me. Uh, anyway, so the Rube came in like 7th or 8th in New Hampshire, and he went from leading Florida to dropping out of the race in 10 days. And he yeah. was the muscle man governor of the state. So it'll disintegrate fast if you don't win early. And if Corey beats her in Iowa and New Hampshire, then that energy will quickly go to him. So nothing works like winning. And the biggest myth, at least historically, has been the bank the vote theory. You know, Al Gore, I'm going to start in the South. Rudy Giuliani, I don't yeah. need New Hampshire. Right. Never works. Right, but there's Be always someone who's willing to try. Yeah, because, you know, it's the old meeting where, well, there's no way we can be in the top fourth in New Hampshire. Let's invent an alternate reality. Yeah. And, you know, that's, a, that's a, a, a beguiling argument, but it always ends in tears. So next week we'll dive into this debate in the hours uh, before it happens or these debates. We just want to remind everybody to send your questions to hacksontap at gmail.com. And get into the mailbag. Plus, here's your homework. Get on iTunes. If you like the podcast, rate us. Make the hacks on tap, hacks on top. We've been moving up the charts thanks to you. Now we got to hack that algo. So the more you rate us, the more people will see it displayed and they can give us a try and see if they like it. So, David, this was fun. We got a big debate coming. I'm excited. And we'll talk next week. See you next time. <laughs>